If you're a politics junkie, you need to be listening to the Election Ride Home podcast. Every day at 5 p.m., former This American Life contributor Chris Higgins reports from the campaign trail. Who's up? Who's down? What issues are getting traction and what do the polls say? Search your podcast app now for Ride Home and subscribe to the Election Ride Home podcast. This episode of Weird Darkness is brought to you by MyPillow. And Link T000 left a podcast review and used it as an opportunity to talk about MyPillow. Here's what they said. What's up, Darren? Thank you so much for keeping me entertained with these awesome stories that you tell so well. I recently got a MyPillow and I love it. I'm a Twitch streamer with a full-time job and it's usually hard for me to sleep and I wake up a lot when I try to sleep. Because of you, I decided to try a MyPillow and I slept so well and uninterrupted that I decided to let you and the amazing Weirdo family know that these MyPillows are amazing and worth trying for themselves. Keep up the good work. Right now, you can get two premium MyPillows for one low price. Go to MyPillow.com and use the promo code WEIRD or call 800-945-7192. That's 800-945-7192 or MyPillow.com. Use the promo code WEIRD. Stories and content in Weird Darkness can be disturbing for some listeners and is intended for mature audiences only. Parental discretion is strongly advised. Gloves, Pete! Use your damn gloves! I screamed in panic, knowing what it would mean if the water came into contact with his skin. Pete realized it too and was fumbling to put them on and he threw the roll of tissues at me. My hand started to burn more intensely and no amount of wiping helped. I was losing feeling in the hand. The spot where the water made contact was now swelling and becoming deathly pale and blistered. It hurt like hell! I clutched my left arm with my right and held it. My left arm registered no sense of touch. I was able to move my fingers around till then, but now they were feeling stiff and immobile, almost paralyzed. Panicking, sweating, my heart rate climbing. Then my hand started to dissolve. Welcome, Weirdos! I'm Darren Marlar, and this is a special archive episode of Weird Darkness. Here you'll find stories of the paranormal, supernatural, mysterious, macabre, unsolved, and unexplained. If you have a dark tale for me to tell, you can share it with me at WeirdDarkness.com. And be sure to subscribe if you've not done so already so you don't miss a single episode. And if you already consider yourself an official Weirdo, Please help me get the word out by sharing a link to this episode in your social media, and thanks in advance for doing so. Now, bolt your doors, lock your windows, turn off your lights, and come with me into the weird darkness. Known to the outside world as the City of the Dead, Dargavs is a truly remarkable and mysterious place we know very little about. Located outside the village of Dargavs in North Ossetia, Russia, this remote place is shrouded in myths and legends. Locals tell that no one has ever come back alive from the City of the Dead, and this is one of the reasons why people avoid this spooky place. However, 
We shouldn't forget that it also takes hours to reach the City of the Dead, and the road is dangerous. To get here, one must go through narrow roads and several hills. The City of the Dead is located in the middle of a mountain valley which stretches over 17 kilometers. The first mention of the City of the Dead dates back to the beginning of the 14th century. The city itself is an ancient cemetery where tombs and crypts are placed on hills or mountainsides closely together. The white crypts vary in size and shape. It is estimated this architectural style dates back to 2,000 years ago. Some of the crypts have ridged, curved roofs going inward in steps with a pointed peak at the top. The smaller crypts have flat sides on the front and back, yet on the sides they curve inwards, and the smallest of the crypts have no roofs at all. There are 99 different tombs and crypts. At the back of the complex there is also a watchtower, but the top of it has been destroyed. Why the Alanian Necropolis, as this place is called, was built here is unknown. Local legends and myths tell stories about plagues that wiped out entire families. According to one legend, a plague swept through Ossetia in the 18th century, wiping out 90% of the surrounding population. To cope with the disease, people had to construct quarantine houses to isolate themselves from the village, patiently awaiting their death. When they died, their corpses were left to rot inside these huts. Our historical knowledge about the City of the Dead is limited, which is the reason why we cannot fully comprehend some of the unusual discoveries archaeologists have found here. For example, scientists have discovered that several of the bodies inside the crypts are buried in ancient wooden boats. The puzzling question is why the use of boats in a place where there are no rivers? One possible explanation is that the boats have symbolic meaning they could serve as transportation for departed souls. Perhaps our ancestors thought that the departed soul had to cross a river in order to get to heaven, and hence the boat. The concept of the souls is very old. Ancient belief about the soul can be found among many cultures worldwide, and people living in Ossetia most likely believed in some sort of afterlife. Another curious archaeological discovery revealed that there was a well in front of every crypt. It is said that once the Ossetians buried their dead, they would drop a coin in the well. If it happened to hit a stone at the bottom, it was taken to mean that the soul had reached heaven. Dead people were often buried with belongings, which shows people believed in the existence of an afterlife. I'm a bit distressed by something that's going on in my life right now. Over the past few months, I kept seeing this woman, like a face in the crowd. I would see her in the street, just sort of hanging around in the background. I have no idea how long it's been going on, as I'm sure I only started to notice this recently. I never saw her close up. She's always just at a distance and always just a fleeting glimpse, like out of the corner of my eye. The funny thing is that she makes me feel, well, terrified. I have no idea why she terrifies me, but she casts something of a sinister figure clothed in a dark shawl and dark clothes. 
At first, I thought I was simply imagining this. But now, I am scared witless and I don't know what to do about it. Last night as I was walking home from the pub, a bit merry, I saw her walking just ahead of me. It froze me in my tracks and I felt that same sense of foreboding. I noticed that no matter how fast or slow I walked, she seemed to stay the same distance ahead of me. What happened next, though, really disturbed me. As I reached the door of my home, still feeling strangely afraid, I looked up the street and there she was. Slowly she turned her head and I saw her for the first time. She had no face. Nothing. I couldn't sleep last night. I was afraid she would show up at my doorstep or even worse in my house. Who and what is this faceless woman? Imagine waking up in the middle of the night. You can hear footsteps downstairs. You venture down the stairs and find yourself face to face with a ghost. That's exactly what happened to one man as reported in the British press. A baffled father claims his home is being haunted by the ghost of a previous tenant after catching a picture of the old lady trying to open the kitchen door. Luke Jackson is currently staying at his brother Tom's house in Sheffield, South Yorkshire, and got up for a cigarette in the early hours of November 13th when he could not sleep. The 36-year-old claims he could hear footsteps downstairs and turned on the light of his phone's camera to see what happened. But the self-employed landscaper was left stunned after taking a picture and discovering the ghostly figure of an old woman wearing a purple cardigan stood at the bottom of the stairs. After ruling out any other possible explanations, Mr. Jackson is convinced the woman he photographed is the ghost of the house's former tenant who died ten months previously. The father of three has been staying with his brother and his girlfriend, Alice Thomas, for the past few months and claims this is the first time he's noticed ghostly goings-on. He said, If I'm being honest, this thing has completely stumped me. I just don't know what it is, and the only explanation is that it's a ghost. It's almost like photographing the Loch Ness Monster in its entirety. It's the photo of a ghost that you never expect to have. You sometimes have bits of the thing, arms and legs, but never a whole photo of the entire thing. This photo is almost too perfect. After catching a glimpse of some of the documentation of the previous occupant, he is convinced the ghost is the old woman's spirit haunting the stairs. Mr. Jackson said, We've talked about this woman before. She had mobility problems, apparently, problems with going downstairs. Alice said to me that since she's had the property, she's heard banging and footsteps. The banging especially was coming from the stairs. The photo appears to show an old woman clad in a black dress and a purple cardigan leaning across in an apparent attempt to open the door. Mr. Jackson said, It must have been around 2.30 a.m. I was just sat up planning a landscaping job through in my head. I just started hearing footsteps and it was like there was something there. I was just like, that's definitely footsteps. 
and I used my phone as a flashlight by taking a photo. That's when I countered it. When I looked back at the shot, that figure had just appeared. This completely baffled me. Mr. Jackson added that it was fortunate he took the shot because he claims he took the clearest picture of a ghost he has ever seen. He said there's a lot of ghost videos where it's blatantly a moth flying in front of the camera or some kind of reflection, but this was different. You can see the photo by clicking the link to the original story in the show notes. According to a story in the Birmingham Mail, Manchester-based paranormal investigators Dale Macon and Justin Cowell of the TV series Paranormal Truth are set to venture into the forest of Canuck Chase with a Ouija board in an effort to contact the enigmatic black-eyed kid there. Filming will take place next month, and the show will air in March, apparently. Canuck Chase is a place many have described as tranquil or beautiful a part of England where few would ever dream of finding anything out of the ordinary. It is a place of dog walkers, fishing, and natural life. It also seems to be a place of unnatural death. There have been several terrifying accounts of black-eyed children in the area, and these accounts seem to be becoming more frequent. A mother and daughter were walking through Birch's Valley when they heard the screams of a young child. By all accounts, they couldn't tell if it was a boy or a girl, but the child seemed to be in distress and sounded extremely close to them. The two of them turned and ran towards the source of the scream. They couldn't find the child anywhere and stopped to catch their breath. The mother turned around and saw a girl standing behind her. The girl was no more than nine or ten years old and had her hands over her eyes. The mother asked her how she was. It seemed natural that she had been the one who'd been screaming. The girl dropped her hands slowly and placed them by her side. The mother watched in horror as the girl opened her eyes and she saw that they were completely black. No iris, no white, just completely black. The mother jumped back and grabbed her daughter. The girl disappeared in a second, but the mother said, that she was chased by strange feelings all day. An earlier account from Canuck Chase came from a married couple who were walking their dog. As they walked through dense woodland, they could hear the sounds of giggling. A child, by all accounts, no taller than three feet in height, appeared out of nowhere. The couple stood watching her and eventually noticed that the girl had completely black eyes. Her head was tilted to one side as though she had been hung. The couple watched as the girl stared at them for a few minutes before running away into a dense area of the forest. The interesting thing about the Canuck Chase sightings is that many of the accounts happen during the day. For those who dare to walk through the forests and overgrowth of the chase, make sure you don't travel alone. Back when I was in college, I was living in a pretty rough part of town in a very old and run-down first-floor apartment. Nothing out of the ordinary happened there for several months. 
until one night when I was lying on my bed watching TV. Suddenly, I heard three pounding knocks on the wall behind my bed. I ignored it. It happened again and again, and I kept hearing these knocks on the wall. It was just heavy pounding, like someone was hitting the wall with both of their fists. At first, I thought it had to be some drunk outside hitting the wall. I went over to the window to see if I could see anyone. Nobody was there. The knocking stopped, so I went back to bed and tried to settle down in front of the TV. A few minutes later, it started again, only this time the knocking was on the opposite wall. This freaked me out. It eventually stopped after about half an hour. A few weeks later, this happened again while a friend was visiting. Teasingly, he said it was a ghost. I didn't think too much of it at the time, but looking back, what else could it have been? This knocking would happen off and on. Months would go by without any knocking and then it would start up again. There was no rhyme or reason to it. Eventually, I moved and haven't experienced anything since. Sometimes I think about going back and talking to the current resident to find out if he or she has experienced anything. I work in an office building in Los Angeles. Over the last couple of years, a lot of strange things have happened in that office that neither of us, my work colleagues, can easily explain. The first strange thing happened one morning when my workmate and I were turning our computers on. She was in the lunchroom and I was in the central office when I heard her say, be right there. She came to the office and said that she clearly heard me calling her name, which I know I didn't do, but we shook it off. However, this started happening on a daily basis. Sometimes it was me who heard someone calling my name. It was very strange. Then the tapping started. Both my work colleague and myself kept feeling someone tapping us on the shoulder as we worked. Sometimes the taps would last for a few seconds. Sometimes it would be a gentle touch. The phantom name calling and tapping stopped for a long time, but something else happened. In the morning when we arrived at the office, we would find every single one of the windows open. Then, of course, there were the calls. The phone would ring in our office, and when it was picked up, there would be nobody on the other end of the line. This would happen at least once a week. These days, we're dealing with strange banging noises, chairs being dragged around, computers turning off and on, but we've never seen anything. It's kind of freaky but we're getting used to it. I just wonder who or what it is. Here at Weird Darkness, scares are a daily thing, but what I'm about to tell you might horrify you. Someone in your family could, right now, be playing a dangerous game of Russian roulette. Over 43,000 people die each year from drug overdose, that's 120 people per day, 5 people per hour. That's a death by overdose every 12 minutes. And alcohol abuse is even worse. 
88,000 people die every year from alcohol abuse. That's 240 people per day, 10 per hour. One person dying from alcohol abuse every six minutes. Somebody close to you might be next. Before that happens, take a proactive step and learn how to get those you love away from the drugs, alcohol, and other bad influences. Learn more by calling 800-831-1560. That's 800-831-1560. With the FMLA, that person can even take a leave of absence from their job to get the help they need and keep their job so they can return to it. 800-831-1560. That's 800-831-1560. With so many weirdos sending in their own stories for Weird Darkness, I know I've got a lot of right-brained creative weirdos listening. Have you been dreaming of writing your own book? Have you already written one? How would you like to be a published author with Dorant Publishing? They've been working with authors and publishing great books for nearly a hundred years, and your book could be next. And they cover it all. They edit your text, design your book pages, create a great-looking cover for your book. Plus, as one of their authors, you'll also benefit from a custom book promotion marketing campaign, making your book available everywhere people buy books – online like Amazon, but also brick-and-mortar bookstores. Your only job is to write the book. Call Dorans Publishing toll-free at 800-847-1362. 800-847-1362. Even if you're only curious, it's still worth making this free call to get their free author's guide to becoming a published author. Call Dorans Publishing at 800-847-1362. Imagine, someday I might be promoting your book in my podcast. 800-847-1362 People keep on asking me what it is with me and water. I drink it, sure. Obviously, I have to in order to stay alive, but when I grab my bottle, it's when I'm severely and absolutely dehydrated and not until I reach my threshold of thirst. I know this takes a toll on my body over time, but a part of me cannot yet overcome the sheer horror I faced a few months back from the apparently harmless water. I am still recovering from the shock of it all, and my shrink has taken it on the top of her priority list to help me overcome my fear. The very water that sustains life has taken the very essence of it out of me. You see, it's not the water itself that I'm terrified of. It's what is inside of it. I was a university researcher a few months back, specializing in microbiology and currently on an indefinite leave from the university and my department. I doubt if I ever will be able to go back to that lab. The university took great efforts to prevent the spread of the news of the incident, and it looks like they did a good job. I think people should know for their own safety about that devilish lake, that abominable water body that cursed me for the rest of my miserable existence. While working at the university, some colleagues of mine and I came to know of this local lake, which allegedly had suddenly the clearest of all waters, all of a sudden, overnight. It didn't sound much at the beginning, but rumors and word of mouth started spreading quickly in the area 
with some incredible claims like one that said you could see the bottom of the lake through the water as if looking through clear glass. This particular lake had been in the area all along, and there was nothing special about it. Locals often went fishing to this place, and teenagers used to hang around the lake perimeters having a good time with their lovers and friends. On one fateful morning, Pete and I decided to check it out ourselves, hoping that we would find something, and mostly because of our piqued interest in the lake after hearing about it almost every day for about a week now. We took our car and drove for a couple of miles before we reached the narrow, worn-down pathway that leads to the lake. It was an early morning with the weather being crisp and the sunshine welcoming, and, lake or no lake, we were quite enjoying ourselves. We parked the car off the road and started to make our way through the narrow pathway. It was about a ten-minute or so hike till the periphery where the ground starts to slope and the waters begin. Being early morning, there were no other people or cars to be seen, and it was peaceful and quiet all around. While walking across the pathway, the evidence of recent human visitations were quite clear with crushed Coke cans, empty bags of chips, and the like. A number of people have been here in the past few days to witness the clear waters firsthand and contributed to the folklore that was building up in the community regarding this place. We reached it, and what we saw really surprised us. The rumors were not entirely inaccurate after all. The water was clear, like crystal clear, and with the sun shining down on the lake, we could see to the bottom of it, right to the numerous pebbles and swirls of mud and silt on the lake bed. This was incredible. We were thinking as to what might have happened that suddenly made the water so clear and almost transparent as if it's just not there. Did the authorities clean it up or something? I've never seen such a cleanup job ever before, said Pete. Had it not been for the breeze, which made the little waves on the surface, it was difficult to spot where the water began. A thought came to my mind. I told Pete about it and he agreed. It turns out I had some collection jars in my car, which, if I go back and fetch, we could take some samples of the lake water with us and test it in our lab, basically just to see if we could find out what made it so clean, so clear. A harmless activity, after all, since it's just plain old water. I noticed something quite odd in the lake, though. As we could see all the way to the lake bed, it was very stark to see that there were no fish in the water absolutely not a single one. Nor was there any plant life either. No algae, moss, or any of those long grass-like plants that grow underwater. It was as if someone had drained out the entire lake of all forms of life that it used to host. I told Pete about this and he remarked this was very unusual and that he noticed it as well. We knew that at the very least there had to be fish, as this lake was frequented by the local anglers. This odd observation made us even more determined to test the lake water, and thus I handed over an empty, sterile jar to Pete, and he crouched down and filled it up. Make sure you don't touch the water, I cautioned him. We hung around for another hour before heading back to the lab and also took some photographs of the lake. And yes, selfies too. Upon our return to the lab, 
Pete and I transferred the sample to a number of small beakers and kept them on a separate tray. The intriguing question at that point was why there was no life form to be seen. Was it because of any chemical spill? In that case, where were the carcasses of the fish and what happened to the plants? I discussed this with Pete over lunch and we decided to carry out a few basic tests. We did not have any fish specimen handy at that time, but we had tadpoles, which would do just as well. So, all being said, we started our little test. We took one of the beakers and set it up in a contained area, brought in one of the tadpoles and slowly dropped it into the beaker. The tadpole started moving about and thrashed its tail around. A minute passed and nothing changed. Pete and I exchanged glances. Then we noticed it. The tadpole was changing color. The dark brown hue of its skin was changing to a lighter shade, and it started thrashing its tail furiously, as if struggling against some unseen force. Its skin color was now rapidly transforming to a clearer form, almost translucent, and we could see its tiny bones and organs inside. We were stupefied at this and had no explanation of what we were witnessing right in front of our eyes. The horror show had not yet ended, though. In a few minutes, the whole body of the tadpole became transparent and turned into a jelly-like consistency. The organs, bones, skin, eyes, everything had now turned transparent, and the creature stopped moving shortly before that. It was now still at the bottom of the beaker, and we could just faintly make out its outline in the now still water. Pete said, it sure looks dead, just the outline remains. Hand me the stirrer. I handed Pete the stirrer. He dipped the glass stirrer slowly in the water, and the end lightly touched the outlined shape of the dead tadpole. Doesn't feel solid, he said. Apply some more pressure, I said. Upon applying the slight extra pressure, the stirrer passed right through it and touched the beaker's bottom. The shape dissolved. The almost transparent, silhouette-like shape of the tadpole simply dissolved in the water right before our eyes. We couldn't believe what just happened and simply had no explanation. We collectively let out a worried sigh and kept staring at the beaker. There were no visible changes in the water at all. The way it looked before we had dropped the tadpole and the way it looks now was exactly the same. It's as if nothing was ever done to the water, crystal clear, with nothing in it. Or so we thought. The procedure was repeated with another tadpole and a fresh beaker, resulting in the same outcome. We videotaped the process and planned on disclosing the find to our superiors. It made sense now as to why the lake water was so clear. There is definitely something in it that is responsible for these effects on living matter something that dissolved the fish, something that obliterated the tadpoles, something ungodly. With this in mind, out came the microscope. Pete prepared two glass slides, each with a drop of the cursed water, and set them up under the microscope. On closer inspection, with enhanced resolution, we saw a shitload of unicellular microbial organisms moving about in the slide sample. That single drop was teeming with creatures. It reminded us of the amoeba, a type of single-celled organism commonly found in water bodies. 
maybe it was a much more aggressive subspecies of the same thing. The amoeba were moving in rapid, jerky movements, using their flagellum in a whip-like motion. What was very unusual was that, apart from the cell nucleus, there were no other cell organelles present, at least not with the current resolution of our microscope. We recorded all of these findings and compiled them to be presented to the other professors for their take on the matter. The species needed to be identified, and fast. I proceeded to transfer the beaker tray to a secure and dedicated biohazard area in the lab. I would never forget that fateful moment. The tray was in my hands and I was treading down the hallway with haste. I should have noticed the bunch of equipment cables snaking across the floor, but I didn't, and inevitably I tripped on it. The beaker closest to my left hand spilled some of the water on the tray and some on my clenched fist. I became terrified as the burning sensation started to gain hold, becoming intense with each second. I called out to Pete, almost screaming. Even in that moment of panic, I had to set the tray with the rest of the beakers safely on the floor and slid it under a table nearby, struggling not to lose my grip. Pete came running and didn't need to be told what had happened. He immediately grabbed a roll of tissues and approached me to wipe the stain. Gloves, Pete! Use your damn gloves! I screamed in panic, knowing what it would mean if the water came into contact with his skin. Peter realized it too and was fumbling to put them on and he threw the roll of tissues at me. My hand started to burn more intensely and no amount of wiping helped. I was losing feeling in the hand. The spot where the water made contact was now swelling and became deathly pale and blistered. It hurt like hell! I clutched my left arm with my right and held it. My left arm registered no sense of touch. I was able to move my fingers around till then, but now they were feeling stiff and immobile, almost paralyzed. Panicking, sweating, heart rate climbing, I was still trying to keep Pete informed about what the feeling was like. Then my hand started to dissolve, like those tadpoles and those fish. I was unable to move my fingers anymore and I lost all sense of my left forearm. I touched a finger with my right hand and it was squishy and spongy. I couldn't feel the bone at all. The insides of all my fingers were being turned into liquid and as my skin lost its natural color and turning more and more transparent, I saw the insides of my fingers. No bones, no blood or blood vessels, no tissue, no nothing. Everything had turned into a clear liquid with seemingly nothing inside. This hideous transformation of turning my hand to jelly now started creeping up from the fingers upwards. I vigorously shook my hand, hoping to stop the ascent, and my fingers simply sloughed off from what remained of my palm. The pain was mind-numbing, and maybe it was enough to make one lose consciousness, but with so much adrenaline rushing through me, I felt every bit of the pain right to the bone. My sloughed-off fingers and half of my palm lay on the floor, looking nothing like what they originally had been. It looked like a small puddle of water someone dropped from a cup while passing. So innocuous. The freaking amoeba were eating through to my wrist now, and I felt the sting and the pain with even greater ferocity. No amount of screaming helped. My throat started to hurt. Fellow researchers heard my screams and Pete's frantic cries for help and, oh my God, and rushed to our aid. Pete screamed at them to keep distance lest someone accidentally step on a puddle and end up just like me. Half of my forearm was now gone, 
and the swelling mass of liquid just shed itself off and fell to the floor, creating another puddle. I threw a bunch of tissues over it to keep it contained. I then realized if I was unable to stop the amoeba from climbing up my arm, it would turn my entire body to jelly and I'd end up dead, being a puddle on the floor. And that too, very soon. Pete! The acid! Give me the acid! I yelled as loud as I could. Pete had his gloves on by then and quickly brought an unopened jar of concentrated sulfuric acid, prying it open on the way to me. Pete tore off a piece of the tarp covering equipment nearby and lay it down hastily. I lay down on the floor with my left arm stretched out and held with my right. In just a few moments, my elbow would start to dissolve. The thick, viscous acid emitted a vapor as the seal was broken and Pete eagerly looked into my eyes for approval. I nodded. Sorry, man, he muttered and started pouring the acid on the stump of my left arm. I saw my arm smoking, the skin turning black instantly as soon as the acid made contact. It was working. I was continuously screaming in sheer pain while Pete continued to pour the acid in order to kill the single-celled bastards. After he was done, the arm, or what remained of it, looked still and dead. There was no jelly transformation taking place anymore. The university authorities had been alerted by then and someone called 911. I wonder what the guy described to the operator. I could not take it anymore, and with the pain now greatly subsided, I passed out, unconscious on the floor. When I woke up, I found myself at the hospital with a huge bandage securing my once left hand. I felt dizzy and a throbbing sensation near my left shoulder. The doctor came in and informed me that they had to perform amputation from a little higher from the elbow and that there was no other option. The CDC had been alerted of the amoeba from the lake, and I later learned they had cordoned off and sealed all paths leading up to the lake, and armed guards were being placed to deter the curious public from the find. There was not much media coverage of the incident, and the only news report I saw just mentioned of an accident at the university. No details, no mention of the amoeba. My life has changed drastically since the incident. I have no more left hand, and I have a newfound fear and disgust of water. CDC is working closely with the university to identify the possible source of the organism. Was it some naturally occurring, previously thought extinct species that somehow resurfaced? Or was it bioengineered? Anyhow, that's all I have to say. Please shut the door on your way out. Thanks for joining me for this archive episode of Weird Darkness. Do you have a dark tale to tell? You can share your story at WeirdDarkness.com and I might use it in a future episode. And if you like the show, please share a link to this episode on all of your social media, tell your friends about the show, and please leave a rating and review. I might read your review here in the podcast. If you'd like to support the show, you can become a patron. Patrons get commercial-free versions of Weird Darkness and early access a month early to the Weird But True video series. Plus, patrons get exclusive content such as chapters of horror and paranormal books that I'm narrating into audiobooks as I record them. 
Learn more about becoming a patron at WeirdDarkness.com. Also on the site, you can get the free mobile app, follow me on social media, join the Weirdos online community, see where I'm going to be on location in the future, and on the page labeled Weird Web, you'll get stories I didn't use in the podcast, fan art, pictures that weirdos like you send in to me, a weekly zombie comic strip, that and a whole lot more at WeirdDarkness.com. I'm your creator and host, Darren Marlar. Again, thanks for joining me in this archive episode of Weird Darkness.